Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Joanne Harris, author of many books, the most recent of which is the novel Peaches for Father Francis. Joanne, welcome. Hello, it's nice to be here. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you to just read to us a little bit from Peaches? Yes, certainly. Um, I'm going to read just from the, the beginning here. Um, where Vian comes back to Laskine, the village she left eight years ago, and finds some changes. The procession was over. Sainte Marie in her festival robes was on her way back to her plinth in the church, her crown put away for another year, her wreath already fading. August is hot in Laskine, and the wind that blows across from the hills strips the land of moisture. By the time we arrived, the four of us, the shadows were already lengthening, with only the top of Saint-Jérôme's tower still shining in the sunlight. The bells were ringing for mass, and people were making their way to church, old women in black straw hats with the occasional ribbon or bunch of cherries to relieve half a lifetime of mourning, old men in berets that gave them the look of schoolboys slouching to class, grey hair slicked hastily back with water from the pump in the square, Sunday shoes capped with yellow dust. No one looked at me as they passed. No one looked familiar. Renaud glanced over his shoulder at me as he led the way to church. I thought there was something reluctant in the way he approached. Although his movements were as precise as ever, he somehow seemed to be dragging his feet, as if to prolong the journey. Rosette had lost her exuberance, along with her plastic trumpet, discarded somewhere along the way. Anouk was walking ahead of us, iPod earpiece in one ear. I wondered what she was listening to, lost in a private world of sound. We passed the corner of the church and stepped into the little square and faced the chocolaterie, the very first place Anouk and I had ever really called home. For a moment, neither of us spoke. It was simply too much to register. The empty windows, gaping roof, the ladder of soot climbing the wall. The smell of it was still half fresh. A combination of plaster, charred wood, and memories gone up in smoke. What happened, I said at last. Renaud shrugged. There was a fire. In that moment, he almost sounded like who in the days that had followed the loss of his boat. The warily, uninflected tone. The almost insulting neutrality. I wanted to ask if he'd started the fire. Not because I believed he had, but just to break his composure. Was anybody hurt, I said. No. Again, that apparent detachment. Who lived there? A woman and her child. Foreigners, I said. Yes. His pale eyes held mine almost like a challenge. Of course, I too was a foreigner, at least by his definition. I too was a woman with a child. I wondered whether his choice of words had been intended to convey something else. Did you know them? Not at all. That, too, was unusual. In a place the size of Laskine, the parish priest knows everyone. Either Renaud was lying, or the woman who had lived in my house had managed the near impossible. Where are they staying now? I said. Les Marots, I think. You think? He shrugged. There are lots of them now in Les Marots, he said. Things have changed, 
since you were here. I was beginning to think he was right. Things have changed in Lascany. Behind the half-known faces and the houses and the whitewashed church, the fields, the little streets staggering down towards the river, the old tanneries, the square with its strip of gravel for playing pétanque, the school, the bakery, all those landmarks that had seemed to me so comforting when I arrived with their illusion of timelessness, all now coloured with something else. A shadow of disquiet, perhaps. The strangeness of familiarity. I saw him glance at the church door. The worshippers had all gone in. Better get your robes, I said. You don't want to be late for Mass. I'm not the one saying Mass today. His tone was still perfectly neutral. There's a visiting priest, Père Henri Lemaitre, who comes on special occasions. That sounded rather odd to me, although not being a churchgoer, I was reluctant to comment. Renaud offered no further explanation, but remained rather stiffly at my side, as if awaiting judgment. Rosette had been watching with Anouk. Both seemed unable to keep their eyes from the chocolaterie. Anouk had taken off her iPod and was standing by the charred front door, and I knew that she was remembering us, soaping and sanding the woodwork, buying the paint and the brushes, trying to wash the paint from our hair. It might not be as bad as it looks, I said to Anouk and pushed at the door. It was unlocked. It opened. Inside there was worse. A jumble of chairs piled in the middle of the room, most of them charred and useless. A carpet, rolled up and blackened. The remains of an easel on the floor, a flaking blackboard on the wall. It was a school, I said aloud. Renaud said nothing. His mouth was set. Hmm. I think that's about five minutes. Yes, that's good. Thank you. And uh, you've picked a wonderful passage too. I mean, it's all wonderful, but you've picked a, a particularly evocative passage because so many of the themes of the book um, seem to have come up in that little, um, you know, the... the um, little reading that you've done seems to have pulled everything up. Um, nostalgia, the notion of going back and, and what does home mean, um, the notion of foreigners. Yes, that's right. Um, I think my main character, Vian, has uh, has had a lot of experience with being a foreigner and as such she's not very good at the idea of home. And Laskinay is the one place that she felt she could have settled down had circumstances been different. And so it's it's a very emotionally charged moment for her to return and to find that history seems to have repeated itself, that another single woman with a child has been apparently hounded out of the same little chocolate shop that, that she was once um, living in. Yes. The whole notion of home, I think, is, is one that's charged with nostalgia. I mean, certainly for, for Vian, it's particularly charged because she has no effective home, and that's part of who she is. But I think for everyone um, to go back in time, it, there's always a touch of nostalgia, even if you haven't left the place you grew up in. I think so, yes, this is true. And of course we have the nostalgia of places that don't exist anymore, except in memory, because of course places change. Mm. And we are often very uncomfortable with the idea that places that we've loved and times that we've loved can't be just kept the way they are, not even in fiction. Yes, and I, and I suppose in the same respect we're all foreigners in one form or another i mean again you know at some point there was often a migration uh, none of us really and truly belongs to a particular place do we 
Well, I think we make our roots and we put them down where we can, but yes, that's quite true. Mm. And so it's interesting how you explore that in, in this book, in, in, you know, in that passage in particular, um, coming back to a place as a foreigner, but also as somebody who, who knows people, who knows the place, even the way Anouk stands there and thinks, you know, how do I take what I'm looking at and reconcile it with my memory? Yes, that's that's right. I think that the relationship between memory and reality and and expectation and the truth is something that that I keep coming back to, particularly in this book. But uh, because the book is all about coming back and the past and what a drag the past is on the present, but how how it's impossible to leave it behind. Yes. Now the obvious question, and I I do suspect that you've been asked it before, but. Um, you're an English writer. Why France? Why not write about Barnsley? Because I'm also a French writer. Because I have mm. a French passport, a French mother, and French was my first language. And it seems very natural for me to write about what I know. In many ways, I'm more of a foreigner in Barnsley than I have been anywhere else. That's extraordinary. And and do you find there's something about France, too, that, that draws you? Well, I'm drawn, of course, to my own version of nostalgia. And because I'm from a predominantly French background, from a French mother who didn't speak English when she moved to England, um, many of my influences were French, although I was living in England. And as such, France was one of those places that I went relatively infrequently, two or three times a year. And as such, I don't see it in quite the same way that a native French person living in France would. Um, and because I often write out of a sense of trying to recapture memories and feelings of the past, um, it's natural for me to, to gravitate to that part of the world as opposed to writing what's under my window every day. Mm. And I suppose that also lends itself to the notion of having more than one book in the series. Uh, for example, in, in this, being able to take different time slots and different perspectives and look at a single place from those different different perspectives. Yes, I think so. I think my dual background means that I've, I've looked at things in a slightly different way than people who, who belong 100% in one place. I think it's given me an interesting perspective in, in terms of what it feels like to be foreign because I've always been at least half foreign everywhere I've been. And as such, I often write from the, the perspective of a foreigner and about foreigners. Mm. And did you always plan to have the three books in the series? Um, no, I didn't plan anything, really. Um, in fact, like Vianne, I was, I was really quite reluctant to stay in one place and to go back because I felt that Chocolat had been such a big success that if I wasn't careful... I would end up being pressured to, to try to repeat the success of Chocolat, which is not something that I particularly wanted to do for its own sake. I was interested in exploring new territories and writing different stories. And I came back to Vianne and her story partly because I was aware that it wasn't finished and also partly because every time I went back I had something new and different to say and it wasn't just repeating the story of Chocolat any number of times. Yes. That's right. So, um, on the other hand, do you find that your characters feel kind of real to you? <laughs> do they do they nag at you? And uh, you know, with with the um, unfinished plot lines, for example, from the earlier books. Uh, yes, yes, they do. Actually, they yeah. they do. I think um, if a character doesn't feel real to an author, I think there's something wrong. Because if it doesn't feel real to me, then I don't see how it's going to feel real to anybody else. 
And if it doesn't, I don't see how they're going to care about those characters. And the fact that they do care about them must be a testimony to to those characters having acquired some sort of independent existence. And as such, they can sometimes be quite troubling to me as a writer because they sit up and they want things and they do things and they, they're unexpected. And I just have to go along with it. So, for example, uh, Monsieur Le Cure, did he beg to be less of a, an antagonist? <laughs> no, actually, I was quite happy to go back to him because I didn't feel that he was a bad guy. Lots of people thought that I did, and lots of people, I think, interpreted Chocolat in a rather simplistic way, and they assumed that there was a good guy and a bad guy in that story. And that wasn't the way I had seen it, or I'd written it. I thought, well, you know, he too has a journey, and he too has things to learn. And so eight years later, having had this experience with, with Jan in Chocolat eight years before, what's happened to him, he must have changed in some way, and, and indeed he had. And so he becomes almost the hero of this novel in some ways. Um, he's still quite recognizably the person he was, but he's also mellowed in some ways. And, and we also see some of his his better sides, because he didn't show in what you'd call an advantageous way in Chocolat. He, he was... Uh, um, he was antagonistic and and closed off, and he's beginning to improve. Well, we also get his point of view. So even when he's acting in a stiff way, we feel his struggle to be less of that. Yes, I think, you know, he is, like many of us, trying to do good and doesn't always manage. And But he does good according to his lights, and he does have limitations. And, and I'm quite fond of him. I always was. Yes, and it's bien, I think. <laughs> yes, I think she's quite fond of him too. I and mean, she knows what he used to be like. And she has got over her fear of what he represents. And as such, because his position has changed in Peaches, because he is no, no longer the, the supreme authority in the village, because he is in many ways a marginalized individual, much as she was, she feels sympathy for him and she wants to help. Also, he has been, she thinks, unjustly accused of having set fire to this chocolate shop, which has later become a Muslim girls' school. Um, and, and she's convinced that he hasn't done it. And nobody else is going to help. And she, she is the kind of nurturing person who is impelled to help anyone in trouble. And particularly because, of course, Renu is the least person likely to ask for help. She offers it. Because that's what she's like. Yes, she has just a little bit of magic in her, doesn't she? But it's a very humanistic kind of magic. Yes, I don't see that magic necessarily has to be represented by flying broomsticks and, and sparks flying in the air. I think magic in its simplest form is the power to change either oneself or other people or the world. And as such, it's a very human quality. The language of magic is all about human qualities. Words like charm and glamour and enchantment and all these things are, are the, the, the words that we use to describe attraction and charisma in human beings. It has nothing to do with spells in Latin or, or any of that sort of thing. And, and so the, the magic that I talk about is, I think, a kind of magic that anybody could do. This is sort of the magic of the author in a way, isn't it? The magic of close observation. Yes, yes it is. It, it is something to do with looking and not being afraid and caring about people. Um, it's not about pyrotechnics at all. 
And the power of treats, of course. <laughs> well, yes, of course, the power of, of knowing what makes people tick. And, of course, food is one of those things that speaks very strongly to people and brings people together in a way that, well, very few other things do. It's the way we use to to cross cultures and to access other people and to express love and to ask for forgiveness and all sorts of other things that we don't do with words, but food speaks. And there is magic to that as well. Yes, and, and food speaks certainly in, in all three of the books in this series. Um, it's the sharing of food that unites these characters, regardless of their culture. And even Inez Benchaki is tempted early on to take those chocolates. You, you know, as a reader, she wants them. Um, <laughs> yes, it's it's one of those elementary ways of bridging cultural differences. What I wanted to do with this story was not to necessarily highlight the differences between these two apparently different communities, but actually get to the root of the things that make them the same. And they have far more things in common than they have that separate them. They are both little insular traditionalist rural communities with a strong religious leader, with families which are primarily matriarchal, gathered around kitchens, with gossips, with people who don't fit in, with families who have secrets. And these things exist on both sides of the river. And the whole story is a kind of exercise in, in finding out some of those secrets and understanding why people do what they do. Yes, which is, I guess, what motivates Vian as a whole, is finding out those secrets and what makes people do what they do. It's, again, that close observation. Yes, and there is one woman particularly that she gravitates to, the woman who has been living in her chocolate shop, partly because that's where she chose to live and also partly because she is a single woman with a child who has been ostracized for one reason or another, and she doesn't understand why. And the challenge is to find out and to help if if the woman needs help. Yes, is it also because she senses that there is pain and difficulty there, that that is where she is needed? Yes, she does sense that. But of course, Ines, this woman in black with the veil, presents a particular challenge because she doesn't want to be helped. She doesn't want to communicate. She wears the full Islamic face veil, and so she doesn't even have facial expressions that she can share. And, of course, she is immune to Vian's culinary magic because she's fasting. The, the, the woman is fasting for Ramadan, and so is impervious to that kind of temptation as well. And so she is a great challenge for Vian because Vian doesn't know how to unwrap the, the mysterious parcel that Ines represents. Mm. And Vian, yeah, she's such a, a rich character. She's one that, that stays with the reader as well. But uh, I imagine that you had an image of her in your head when you began writing the books. Is it? Do you see her now as Juliette Pinochet? Is it hard not to see her in, in that um, with that face, with with that voice? Well, no, not really, because. I mean, for a start, I was very happy with the casting of, of Juliette because she corresponded very closely to what my imagination had, had been. But the fact that I already have in my mind what my characters look like, that's not going to be changed just because there was a movie, much as I liked the movie, um, mm -hmm. because the movie came later. My movie had already been made in my head, and, and so I still see my characters as I wrote them originally. This may not be true of all readers, particularly the ones who saw the movie first. Yes. And uh, is there talk of uh, a sequel, another movie? 
there's always talk and I never listen until something actually happens because that yes. is the safest and sanest way to approach the movie business. Yes, I suppose that's Hollywood. Yes, it is. And things can take a long, long time in the movie business. And given that it's somebody's work but not mine, I will just let them get on with it and it will be lovely if something happens. Yes. Do you see it that way as a completely, completely different uh, piece of art? It is a completely different thing, yes. It's... Uh, it's a completely different discipline. And also, it would be, if it came about, somebody else's interpretation of my book. And therefore, not necessarily something that I would have a great deal to say about. I mean, I might enjoy the process for its own sake and because I like movies. But when the book is finished, my work is done and somebody else's begins. That's how I see it. And, and therefore, um, I would never judge a book on a movie made from a book because I know how how importantly they can sometimes differ. Yes. I suppose as a writer, um, the whole process of writing is a, once you finish, it, you have to give it up so that every reader will take your book and read it differently. In, in effect, it becomes a whole different experience, a whole different medium. That's right. And this is the lovely thing about books, in fact, that as soon as you send it out into the world, it belongs in a different way to every single person who opens it and who chooses to read into it what they like. And I think in my experience... People mostly see themselves in books. They don't see me, and that's exactly as it should be. Mm. Now, um, I want to go back to the food a little bit. <laughs> Just because it's uh, it, it's so uh, so evocative, so inherent, um, inherently a part of the book. Um, I, I myself, I don't normally like chocolate, but um, <laughs> while I'm reading your books, <laughs> I find myself drinking a lot of hot chocolate. Um, do you write to entice your own taste buds? Do you find yourself getting hungry as you're you're writing these wonderful descriptions? Not really. You'd think so, but it doesn't really happen that way because the, I think the potency of what I'm doing is usually self-sufficient. Mm. It's I I don't constantly want to go off and eat chocolate. It, it, what I'm doing is a kind of substitute, and so I'm much too busy trying to concentrate on creating something that other people will believe in. But I, I don't actually have to go and entice myself by eating chocolate. And I, I'm a bit like you. I, I, I quite like chocolate, but it's not something that I have to eat all the time. And um, and so I'm much more likely to be playing with sensations and the kind of emotional resonances that they might have than than just trying to to write about food. Yes. Uh, and and I suppose the same goes for the nostalgia, that the writing of it actually cures it. Do you Do you find that? Well, I don't think there is a cure for the kind of nostalgia that some people feel, but it is in a way a sublimation of that. It is a way of keeping alive things that aren't alive anywhere else, places mm. that are just fixed in the past because they don't exist properly in the present anymore, and, and people too. Sometimes I write about members of my family, and quite often they're, they're people that I either never see or who died years ago, but I remember them in stories. And and that gives them life. Yes, and and even uh, in the book in, in in Peaches, the the book begins with the letter from the dead. That in effect, she she comes back to life in yes. her letter. Yes, she does. Um, and her voice is still very strong to me and to Jan. And I reckoned that I knew that in this story, I had to bring Jan back to Lanskine, but I knew there were not very many voices that she would listen to, and the voice of Armand, who she saw in Chocolat as a kind of adopted grandparent figure. 
is strong enough to even reach over the years and even the fact that she has died to to have that influence over Fian. Because I think we're all like this in one way or another. There are very few voices we really listen to in that kind of way. Mm. Yes. Now, um, you've got another book that's just come out as well. Um, it's quite different, Runelight. Um, just tell me briefly about the series. Well, I have been writing in parallel with the other stories that I've written about France and about food. I've been writing a, a, a number of fantasy books, the first of which was Rune Marks, um, which, uh, which are based, loosely speaking, on Norse mythology. And, um, and I have a whole fan base, mostly of younger people who... Uh, who are waiting quite enthusiastically for the next one. So it's basically Norse gods at the end of the world, um, in a world which is similar to our own but not quite the same. It's a world which has been dominated by Viking culture rather than Christian culture. And as such, um, is a kind of alternative could-have-been world as opposed to, to what we live in now. Mm. Uh, it's a pretty rich vein to tap into as well, isn't it? Norse mythology. Yes, it is. Um, there have been plenty of things written about it in one way or another, but it's a very rich source of ideas. It's a very vibrant pantheon. Um, and actually, the material that exists is, is relatively small and fragmented, and therefore it's quite fertile ground for people wanting to expand it mm. and add parts of themselves to it. And so people have taken the Norse myths over well over over centuries and have made it into into different kinds of story. Yes, and, and you've got another collection as well, just out um, a cat, a hat and a piece of string. That's a lot of books to be promoting at once. Well, I'm not promoting them all at once, of course. I'm really just promoting this one. But uh, yes, sometimes in different countries I end up promoting different things, which can be quite confusing. You know, this is Estonia, and therefore I'm promoting short stories. Or this is Germany, and therefore I'm promoting fantasy. Yes, and I suppose to your fans, uh, do do you find there's much crossover, or, or are they really quite distinct groups? I mean, they're different markets. There's course. actually a huge amount of crossover because what mm. I write is is wildly diverse. Um, I have a wildly diverse kind of readership, and some people do read religiously everything that I write. Some people wait for the books that I've written that are about France, or some people like the fantasy novels, or some people like the murder mysteries and, and the thrillers that I've written. But some just actually are interested in what I'm going to do next, whatever it is. And they'll just wait, and they will read it, and then they will come back and say what they thought. It's quite nice that my readership is, is so diverse and so open to all sorts of different things, mm. because I'd get terribly bored just writing the same thing over and over again. Yes, and do you find um, that when you're actually working on more than one book simultaneously that, that you, you can get to an impasse with one and then go off and work on another? Do, do they inform each other at all? Um, they sometimes bounce off each other, but I try not to not to think too hard about something that I've left because very often I find that I'll write something for six months and then there will be a moment where I have to abandon it maybe for another six months or maybe longer simply because I'm waiting for something to happen. And so I have to go to something else, and usually it's something quite different, because intellectually it gives me some rest time. Um, and it means that whatever idea needs to gestate, it, it has the time to do it, and I don't feel under any kind of pressure. But no, I, I find that I'm, I'm quite capable of keeping them in separate compartments, which is probably a good thing. Yes. 
But um, obviously, with so many books coming out, you do a lot of promotion almost constantly if you include the Twitter addiction. <laughs> Talk to me a little about how you manage the balance between writing and promoting. Well, I don't consider things like Twitter as promoting at all. Um, to me, that's an essential contact that I have with my colleagues and my friends and the rest of the world. Um, I wouldn't dream of, of using it or, or, in fact, any other social media to, to promote because I think people who do it that are so dull. But um, the touring, I think, is an essential thing for me because although it takes up a lot of time and obviously I can't write in the same way when I'm touring as when I'm at home, but it is the one means that I have of keeping in touch with the public that I have. Um, and and also I think of expressing gratitude for all those publishers and editors and booksellers and reps and all these other people who helped to keep my books on the shelves because it takes a lot of people to to put a book into a bookshop and sometimes I think as writers we tend to forget this unless we go out and meet those people and thank them and realize all the work they've done and so this too is a good thing and, and obviously meeting the public because critics may say good or bad things but critics are never without an agenda whereas actual readers just vote with their feet and they'll tell you things exactly how they see them and it's important for me to understand where I've got things right where I've got things wrong and I suppose it's also energizing in a way too to see so many people who you know I guess who who love and and have relationships with the books yes it is it's lovely um and it's it's amazingly invigorating and I get such a kick out of writing the books anyway that I'm always slightly surprised when so many people love them but it is nice for me to see that and it's nice for me to understand that I'm not just sending stories out into the ether that there are actual real people who are waiting for them and responding to them and it's a wonderful thing and it's it's rather humbling in fact that my books have gone to all these different countries and mm. resonated with so many different people and it's nice to have a contact with those people from time to time. Yes, I almost think it, it's they they function in a way almost like the food and the books that they bring people together from different cultures. They sort of cross over that divide. Well, stories are food of another kind, and I think we yeah. need them just as much. Mm, what a wonderful way to put it. Um, now I I know we're uh, nearly out of time, and um, you've got plenty of books coming out. But uh, is there another work in progress that you're? Oh, there's always something in progress. Although I think I'll get down seriously to writing something new when I get back from from this tour, which is taking me all over the world. And uh, hopefully, sometime in November or December, I shall get the chance to actually sit at my desk again and start seriously thinking about what comes next. Mm. Wonderful. Well, that's all we have time for today. Uh, but listeners who want more of you can stay up to date uh, with your news, which you keep very um, up to date, at www.joanne-harris.co.uk. That's right. Or follow me on Twitter, where I am Joanne Chocolat, and I do try very hard to talk to people who talk to me. Yes, and I've noticed you're quite active there, so <laughs> it's a great place to keep in contact. Joanne, thank you so much for dropping by today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Listeners, don't forget to join us next month when Lily Brett joins us to talk about her novel Lola Bensky. Bye. <laughs>